This is Southern Discomfort. Seventy-five years ago, on August the 6th, 1945, the United States detonated an atomic bomb over Hiroshima, Japan, that ultimately killed 140,000 people. Then, on August 9th, the U.S. dropped a second bomb over Nagasaki, instantly killing 40,000 people, with tens of thousands more dying within the next few months resulting from injuries and radiation exposure. On the 75th anniversary of the dawn of the nuclear age, Jessica T. Matthews wrote in the New York Review of Books that, in part, because of effective deterrence, fear of their destructiveness, and a growing taboo against their use, and in part because of dumb luck, nearly a century has passed without nuclear weapons being used again in conflict. You might not know it, but a second nuclear arms race, one potentially more cataclysmic than the first, is currently underway. This new nuclear arms race is just one example of how even in the face of entrenched partisan divisiveness, public officials in the U.S. remain united on maintaining and even fortifying America's nuclear supremacy regardless of the financial, environmental, or human costs. In 2001, Republican President George W. Bush withdrew from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, an arms control agreement dating back to the 1970s. President Obama, a Democrat, secured passage of the New START Treaty, limiting the number of nuclear weapons, by agreeing to a $100 billion plan to modernize the country's nuclear apparatus, including the Trident II D-5 nuclear missiles that are housed at the naval base at Keynes Bay in Georgia. And while he has taken steps to ease tensions with North Korea, President Trump seems bent on turning the clock back to the 1950s, a time when the country had more than 30,000 nuclear warheads and bombs, and every American lived under the fear of annihilation. Decades of fearing a nuclear war that didn't happen may have induced an unwarranted complacency that this threat belongs to the past, Matthews writes. A million people gathered in New York's Central Park in 1982 to call for an end to the arms race in the largest political demonstration in U.S. history. Today, the prospect of nuclear disaster is barely noticed. Two years ago, seven peace activists engaged in a bold act of civil disobedience in an effort to break through the malaise and to protest the U.S.'s preparations for omnicide, the death of everything. On April 4, 2018, the anniversary of the assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., seven Catholic plowshares activists infiltrated the Keynes Bay Naval Base in St. Mary's, Georgia. The Keynes Bay Naval Base is the largest nuclear submarine base in the world, containing six Trident submarines, each capable of holding 200 nuclear warheads. Some of the Catholic activists strung up crime scene tape and hung protest banners that read, the ultimate logic of Trident is omnicide. Others symbolically disarmed the deadly arsenal by pouring their own blood around the base, 
and using hammers to beat full-scale replicas of the Trident missiles, a reference to a verse in the book of Isaiah that calls on nations to beat swords into plowshares. Catholic plowshares activists have remained committed to abolishing nuclear weapons since they began organizing around the issue during the Cold War of the 1980s between the United States and Russia. Joining me now to discuss the Teens Bay action and its impact on the movement to abolish nuclear weapons is one of the members of the Teens Bay Plowshares 7, Patrick O'Neill. O'Neill is a longtime peace and anti-racist activist and a co-founder of a Catholic worker house in Garner, North Carolina. How long have you been a part of the Plowshares movement? My first Plowshare action was in 1984 on Easter Sunday. So it was three and a half years after the first Plowshare action, which was in September of 1980. My Plowshare action that I did in 1984 was the eighth overall Plowshare action. And uh, the one I was involved in now was somewhere around the hundredth. I don't know if there's actually accurate counts of that because the, some of them happened in other countries. And But they're, they're estimating that ours was about the hundredth. So there were 30, 36 years between the two plowshares that I was actually, uh, a, you know, a an actor, as we call it. I acted in them. There was a massive nuclear arms race during the 1980s between the United States and Russia that many people feared would move us closer to mutually assured destruction. Today, we are in the midst of another arms race. Can you talk about the two plowshares actions that you participated in and the context of what was going on then and now to maintain American nuclear supremacy? Well, in 1984, Reagan was still president and there was a lot more sensitivity to the fact that we, you know, we were basically on hair trigger alert all over the world. The uh, arms race was perceived as being a lot more dangerous than because of the Cold War. I don't really perceive it as being any less dangerous now, to be honest with you, because I think that technology, the way it is, makes it far more likely now in the 21st century that we could use nuclear weapons by mistake. I mean, it could be or by, a, or by a terrorist. But I guess in the 80s, when I acted, there was more sense that Reagan was, he just really, really increased uh, spending for war and, and nuclear weapons. Reagan was a big militarist and people were you know, trying to find ways to, to diminish the arms race and Reagan was looking at ways to increase it. And uh, Reagan's motivation might've been more, more pure than Trump's or Obama's, who are, both of them are pushing the arms race significantly. Obama has, you know, was the one who called for the, uh, you know, basically remaking the U.S. nuclear weapons system by taking all of the weapons that are sort of getting aging out by the standards of the government. You know, they're saying, okay, we can't use these Trident submarines anymore. We have to build a whole fleet of new ones, and that's what they're going to do. So in 1984, going back to the plowshares, you know, I saw the arms race as being something that re really needed to be addressed, you know, in a very serious way. And uh, joined a group of eight people who acted at a U.S. war plant in Orlando, Florida. At that time, it was called Martin Marietta. Now it's called Lockheed Martin, and they're still producing weapons of mass destruction. And that's where my first plowshare action occurred. And I went to prison for uh, 26 months out of a three-year and two-month sentence. Uh, I had another charge that added two months to it. In 1982, a million people gathered in New York City to protest nuclear proliferation. 
If we are in the midst of another nuclear arms race today, why aren't there more people out in the streets? I think what's happened now in 75 years of, of U.S. nuclearism and global nuclearism, but 75 years since the uh, incineration of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, being part of a, a, uh, a global nuclear empire, you know, which the United States basically leads the whole show, uh, has become normal to people. Being under a 24-hour a day, seven day a week, 365 days a year, hair trigger alert in which the uh, life as we know it could be ended in a matter of minutes if, if, the, if, if you know, the nuclear weapons of the U.S., Russia, and China, for example, and Western Europe were all used in some exchange of uh, nuclear weapons, we could, we could end the human experiment. There's no doubt about that. And the fact that nobody seems to care about this now it's so different than it was in the 80s when people were really very, very worried about the arms race and worried about, I mean, they were more worried personally, you know, for their own survival. But now people have just become comfortable living in the nuclear age. A very good example of this, Jonathan, is the fact that our action, seven, uh, you know, Catholic pacifists go down to this Navy base. We cut a lock, we go in. We hammer on some idols, you know, some statues of nuclear weapons is what we did. And, uh, you know, and we're facing severe consequences. Steve Kelly, Father Steve Kelly, a Jesuit priest, and you probably know that Pope Francis is a Jesuit. They're in the same religious order. He's been sitting in this jail in South Georgia for, he's in his 29th month or 30th month now. And uh, this guy's a theologian. He's a brilliant Jesuit priest. There has not been any media coverage of the fact that he's there. And Steve's crime, literally, his crime is going through a fence where the lock was cut off the fence and cutting two more fences to go inside a, um, uh, a restricted area. So basically, for using a bolt cutters three times, three times, uh, Steve has been in jail for almost two and a half years. So the government is quite serious about uh the consequences for us, we're, 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 we have to be deterred. I personally have been, I'm in my 28th month of being on house arrest or curfew because I represent a danger to the community. So here's the seven of us, Christian pacifists, Roman Catholic pacifists, and we're being characterized as being a threat to the safety of the community. And the court completely ignores the fact that, you know, the Trident submarines are, are floating around in the harbor of St. Mary's, Georgia in Kings Bay, and uh, they get a free pass. The Plowshares Movement was started by the late priests and peace activists Daniel and Philip Berrigan. Philip's wife, Liz McAllister, who is a venerated peace activist in her own right, is another member of the Kings Bay Seven. The Catholic faith has underpinned most of the Plowshares' actions going back to the very beginning. Can you talk about the process of prayer and fellowship that the seven of you engaged in throughout the lead up to the Kings Bay action? We were gathering over the course of probably two years in preparation to do this action. And there are two components to plowshare actions that generally apply. They don't always apply because there are people who do plowshare actions that are you know, not people necessarily motivated by their religious faith. Two, there are two components, and Phil Berrigan, as the founder of the Plowshares Movement, used to always say, you need to do criminal preparation and you need to do prayer. He said, but then you reach a point where your prayerful preparation just becomes the only preparation. 
that that you leave the rest to the Holy Spirit. You know, Phil would always say, you know, with regard to actually gaining access to the weapons, he would always say, the Holy Spirit will open doors for you. And literally, that's true. Almost all of these plowshare actions have happened without any interdiction at all. I mean, unarmed pacifists keep gaining access to weapons of mass destruction, to to the computer equipment of weapons of mass destruction, even to Navstar satellites. The plasher action got to where these two guys used a, used a hatchet to put holes in two $1 million Navstar satellites back in the 80s. These plasher actions have often just come up, you know, come off without a, any kind of a problem. I mean, it's as easy as pie. And there's something to be said for that. From my perspective, I'm going to say the Holy Spirit's opening doors to us, but it also says about the fact that these weapons are just so accessible because they're so, they're just everywhere, right? They're all over the world. There's all these Air Force bases, Navy bases. Naval Station Kings Bay is, a, I don't know if it's 15,000 acres. It's a huge, huge facility that's completely accessible from the waterfront all along the bay. Anybody could get in in the kayak or a boat or whatever and get to these weapons, right? I mean, the, the Trident submarines come in that way. And then there's a fence line. And uh, we found places where there wasn't even a fence line where you could just walk in. So, uh, you know, they're really, it's not safe. None of it's safe. I mean, but how can you even associate the word safe with weapons of mass destruction anyway, right? I mean, I find that sort of absurd on its face. Talk about why you chose the Kings Bay Trident submarine base to stage your action. What is its significance historically? And how does it factor into the frightening new global arms race that we are all confronting today. Kings Bay was selected by us ultimately after our prayerful consideration. And, and what we did is we basically met together in retreats. And our retreats generally lasted about three, three to four days. And we met in uh, uh, mostly, mostly in Pennsylvania, because all, all of my defendants are from the Northeast. Liz was from Baltimore, but she had ended up living in New York for a lot of that time. So I was the only one from the South. So I had to always do the most traveling. Uh, I spent a lot of time driving back and forth to Pennsylvania. We went to Vermont uh, one time up to Martha's place, Martha Hennessy. And uh, we had retreats in New York City. We just had gatherings in different places over the course of time. And, and also, you know, we were always talking about you know, where should we go? Where should we have a plasture action? Where will it have a, where will it have a good impact? You know, where is what's going on, uh, you know, particularly uh, egregious? And uh, ultimately we came down to Kings Bay because the, the, North, the Northwest Trident based is two. There's one in Southeast Georgia and one in Northwest Washington and Kitsap. So you there was lots and lots of action, including plowshare actions at the one in the Northwest, but there had never been any significant resistance to Kings Bay's plowshare operation, which was the same really as Kitsap. And so we were, there had never been a plowshare action there. And we thought, well, it would be a good place to, to have an action to call attention to this, uh, this sort of idea that people aren't really focusing on what's going on there. And we thought our action would sort of be a real sort of wrench in the works of business as usual uh, at, at a place where, you know, weapons of mass destruction abound. So that's how come we, we selected Kings Bay. Describe the events that took place at Kings Bay on the evening of April 4th, 2018. 
we were keeping an eye on the activities going on at uh, Naval Station Kings Bay because we were really hoping a Trident submarine would come into port and that we could gain access to it and put some dents in it with our hammers, you know, symbolic. If you go to New York City and you're on First Avenue, right in 44th Street or so where the United Nations is, there's actually a wall on the west side of First Avenue. It's a one block long granite wall. It's called the Isaiah Wall and inscribed in gigantic letters. It reads, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. One nation shall not lift sword against another, nor shall they train for war any more. That's the second chapter of Isaiah, the fourth verse. All the plowshare actions have been a product of that verse. That 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 verse in, in the, the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah's comments are are the impetus, the theological impetus for plowshare actions. We're saying that these weapons need to be converted. So while the government says we destroy things, we say no, we've converted them from you know from weapons of death to you know we're trying theoretically to make them into plowshares. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the basis for it. Uh, Isaiah 2.4. And so when there was no Trident submarine coming into port, we realized there was just going to be no way to actually put some dents in a Trident. So we kind of scrambled and looked for other options. Uh, Steve and Carmen and Liz cut through two fences and went to that bunker area and hung banners. Uh, Martha Hennessy, Dorothy Day's granddaughter, and uh, and Claire Grady from Ithaca Catholic Worker went to the administrative building and put crime scene tape in front of it and brought an indictment of the base for weapons, for, you know, maintaining weapons of mass destruction. And then myself and Mark, you know, we discovered and heard from people that there was this missile shrine that they had there. So we were able to find it on Google Maps and, and it was literally uh, probably more than a dozen statues, uh, exact replicas of nuclear weapons of mass destruction. And they were there with flags all around them and a little brick wall. And it was sort of like a welcome place, you know, where people would come into the base. They would go by this and see these statues of nuclear weapons. And there's a Trident D5, the Trident 2 D5 missile, which is the is the probably the deadliest weapon ever made by humankind. The Trident 2 D5 is their, is their weapon of choice that was actually developed for the purpose of being on the Trident. It's a first strike weapon because it hits its target with accuracy within 100 yards. So it's ridiculously overwhelming in its destructive capability. And they had one of those that was sort of up on a little kind of a, a cement kind of bubble on the ground. And then it came out and it was really high, really tall. So I was thinking with a hammer, I could put, you know, some holes in it, you know, like, you know, actually. So this would be more. <clears throat> so I kind of switched my focus from Isaiah to Exodus and, you know, talking about idolatry, that these were truly idols. And I, this was a way more uh, horrific idol than a golden calf. I mean, here we were idolizing weapons of mass destruction. I mean, whoever came up with, came up with that idea, well, let's just build statues of nuclear weapons. Like, I can't even imagine all these military people sitting around at that base, planning this base and saying, yeah, yeah, we need a shrine to nuclear weapons. So here I am, you know, in the middle of the night, it's dark. Now this thing is lit up. So, you know, I go running up to the thing because I'm thinking I have just a few seconds to hit this thing and then there'll be cops swarming all over the place. Anyway, 
I went running up the thing and I went to hit it <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> it was, it was solid cement and the hammerhead broke right off my hammer. So it was a formidable idol. We spray painted the word idol on every one of those uh, statues. And I also threw a, a bottle of human blood onto the base logo, which was on the cement. I mean, the brick wall that was, was, uh, in part of that Michel shrine kind of decorations. What kind of coverage did the Atchin receive from the media? The media has completely ignored us. Now, we have three big media markets near where we are in southeast Georgia, the biggest one being Jacksonville, Florida, which is literally just across the border from Kings Bay. The Tridents are right there in Jacksonville's backyard, even though they're in Georgia, and, and Atlanta and Savannah. Savannah's a smaller media market, still three major media markets, and none of them have covered us. None of them covered our trial. We had Martin Sheen. <clears throat> now, I mean, Martin Sheen is in Pope Francis, but Martin Sheen is a prominent celebrity. He came to one of our hearings uh, before our trial when we were trying to uh, incorporate the use of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in our defense. And I wrote the press release telling the local media in Southeast Georgia that Martin Sheen was going to have a press conference and he was going to be able to speak about you know, our action and his commitment to peace. And he's a very, very articulate guy. He's, he's, he's not like you bring in some celebrity and he just, he's there for show. Sheen has a, has very sophisticated views and, and, and basically theologically, he's completely in tune with the seven of us. Nobody showed up for that press conference. Not one TV camera came. There was one local reporter from the Brunswick newspaper who did a story, but I mean, nobody outside of the, the local guy who does a fairly terrible job of covering us uh, came. So there was zero interest in a press conference that we invited him to be at. So, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I basically, I was just shocked that we, we did not raise uh, any curiosity or interest. And I mean, I know that a lot of this, I mean, people were saying to me, oh, this is a media blackout. You guys are being, you know, you're, you, you're, 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 what you've done is just so, so threatening that, that the media doesn't want to cover you. And I said, I'd, I'd like to think that was true, but it's actually not true. The media is not blacking us out. Editors are sitting around in there and with their reporters at TV stations and they're deciding what to cover. And they're saying, you know, we're just a bunch of outliers and there's no reason to cover them. I mean, they've just made a conscious decision to say we're not worthy of coverage. It's not a blackout at all. So, I mean, it just says something about how, how relaxed people are about being under the shadow of, of the nuclear arms race. You are the only Southerner among the Kings Bay Plowshares 7. Did that give you a different perspective in terms of how your act of civil disobedience would be met by the justice system? Anytime, uh, anytime you engage in civil disobedience in the South, I tell this to everybody, even if it's a misdemeanor, uh, you have to be ready, especially from the federal government, to face severe consequences. I'm a very, very big opponent of the death penalty. I've been doing a lot of work against capital punishment since the late 70s in the South. And in North Carolina, we've had more than 40 executions since executions uh, started over again uh, in 1984. So I think there might have been one year we had eight executions in a year. We have a kind of a, a de facto moratorium right now, which I'm very happy that we're having. But 
the point is that the vast majority of executions take place in the South. And if you count Texas in there, of course, they're the number one killer of uh, people on death row. So there's, it's a very punitive region of the country. That's, that's a, a, you know, a point of elected officials to talk about law and order. And in fact, Joe Biden in the mid-90s uh, joined up with Strom Thurmond, who was a longtime segregationist, uh, who was in the Senate until into his 90s in South Carolina, that Strom Thurmond and, and, and Joe Biden you know, crossed over the party lines and joined together to revamp the entire federal sentencing guidelines. I think there are four times or five times as many people in federal prison since that because of, uh, of Biden taking a real hard line on people convicted of drug offenses and white collar crime. So what you see now, uh, you know, is very severe consequences. And those consequences are more severe in the Southeast. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're considered uh, by the courts to be a threat to the safety of the community, even though we were completely nonviolent, unarmed, carried no weapons, walked into a, a base, cut a lock on a fence. And, and, uh, and basically, even in our trial, a lot of reference were, references to vandalism were made by the government. Well, you can call it vandalism as the word of choice from the government, but the consequences for us are not, are not in any way comparable to what most vandals face. I mean, I'm looking at 18 to 30 months in prison for vandalism, uh, vandalism of a statue and a, and a monument, you know, a, a, a shrine. So, uh, Obviously, the government's treating it much, much more severely than vandalism. So in answer to your question, in the South, consequences are just more severe. They're just way more severe. And even though the federal system is a, is a national system and it basically operates very similar, right? Judges with a lifetime appointment, U.S. attorneys, you know, that usually are appointed by the president, uh, Prosecution, prosecutors and probation people all have the same jobs, the same pay. You know, it's all it's all supposed to be in theory the same, but that's not the way it is when uh, you do actions in the South. Like, for instance, at the School of the Americas protests that used to happen every year in November at uh, Fort Benning in Georgia, another part of Georgia where there was a lot of protesting because the U.S. was training uh, troops from Latin America who went back and committed you know, atrocities against their own people. And they were graduating from the School of the Americas, which was a school on the Fort Benning base, the army base in south, southwest Georgia, right on the Alabama line. And people there who were just stepping over a line, literally stepping over a line from city property in Columbus, Georgia, to federal property, Fort Benning, would get sent to prison for six months. Six months for a simple act of stepping over a line uh, you know, on a federal facility, and you would you would get six months in prison for that. I've now spent more than a year of my life counting twenty four hour days. More than a year of my life of twenty four hour days under house arrest or curfew now, without even having been sentenced yet. So I've already done a year of confinement, more than a year of confinement to my own house. So I, that's that's the kind of you know, like for the last two years, I've been dealing with a probation officer. I had to wear an ankle monitor for 18 months. And I'm dealing with this probation officer who's younger than me. And he's basically, you know, been treating me like a, a teenager for two years. 
you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of bizarre, but you know, this is, it comes with the, uh, it comes with the territory calling me up on the phone and making sure I'm not violating my curfew and threatening me and so on and so forth. Like when I was under house arrest, I would only be allowed to leave my house on Sunday to go to mass and come right back home. So I was confined to my house for 22 hours a day. And when I asked the probation officer if I could stay for the coffee hour after mass at my church, he said, no, you can only go to the service. <laughs> That's how strict they were. I mean, it's just, you know, unbelievably harsh. And so being in the South, uh, you got to be ready for not a slap on the wrist, but a slap in the face. <laughs> Liz McAllister received a sentence of time served with three years supervised release. The remaining six Kings Bay Plowshares activists are still waiting to be sentenced, which could be as late as mid-October. How harsh of a sentence are you expecting to receive, and how do you think it might be impacted by the coronavirus pandemic? In our action, and most of what was happening with our action, including our trial, all occurred prior to the pandemic. So uh, the pandemic is something that's sort of <clears throat> uh, uh, been happening while we've been awaiting sentencing and while our sentencing has been delayed now four or five times because of the pandemic. And it's been delayed at at our request. We've been filing motions to delay it because <clears throat> several of my co-defendants don't want to travel back to Brunswick, Georgia in the midst of the pandemic. COVID now is something that is having an impact on the world as we await sentencing. And it will be interesting to see, and I really don't think that our judge and our U.S. attorney and our probation people are going to be very compassionate because of COVID. I think their ultimate goal is to see all seven of us serve jail time and serve prison time. And they're not, they're going to just pretend like COVID's not a factor. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if they said, in spite of COVID, these people should still go to prison. I think that's what the U.S. attorney is going to say to the judge. And I think the judge is going to agree. The judge so far has not um, given us relief in any aspect of our case. She has not agreed to one of our motions of relief, uh, you know, where we've sought some relief, like we've asked to get off the ankle, not the ankle monitors, but off the house arrest and curfew. We've uh, we've asked to have our bail money returned to the people who put it up for us. We've we've asked for uh, the use of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So we've received no relief, none whatsoever. And even though the guidelines in my case, the federal guidelines from my sentencing called for 18 to 24 months, the probation office recommended that I serve 30 months. So they wanted me to serve six months more than the maximum of my guidelines. So they've been extremely punitive toward us. And uh, I suspect that that's going to be the case. I, I expect to go to prison and, um, and COVID not to, not to be of any concern to them. And unfortunately, the prison that's nearest to my home, that would be the easiest place for my wife and my eight children to visit me, is in just north of Durham. And I live just south of Raleigh, so it's less than an hour away. It's a federal prison in Butner, North Carolina, where actually where Bernie Madoff is. And the Butner prison has already had, I think they've gone over 30 COVID-related deaths. In fact, they have the highest number of deaths in the entire federal prison system. So obviously, I don't want to be sent there under these circumstances, which means I'll be a lot farther from home than I would be had I been there less than an hour trip. When the, when the Bureau of Prisons gets our case, 
they can if they want to, based on the fact that we're over all of us are over the age of sixty, and we're you know over the age of sixty is considered the vul- most vulnerable susceptibility age, you know, age bracket for people uh, to uh, get COVID, and also the fact that our our, our offense uh, was nonviolent. The Bureau of Prisons could decide to give us home confinement as our sentence, or give us home confinement initially until they found a, a prison that was safe to send us to. But I, I don't expect any of that to happen. I expect I'm going to be sent to prison and I'm going to serve my prison sentence. If if that doesn't happen uh, and I get some kind of relief by, you know, home confinement for part of that time, uh, you know, I'll, I'll welcome that. I'm not opposed to that, but I'm not expecting it. When a federal judge sentences you, she, in our case, it's a woman judge, she has two criteria to consider when sentencing somebody to prison. And pretty much the only options you get, like my guidelines come back 18 to 24 months. She has to sentence me within those guidelines or up to 30 months as the as the, as the probation office recommended. She has to sentence me. She can't just say, I'm letting Mr. O'Neill go because I think this would be too severe a consequence for him. She, she can't do that. It's not even her choice. So she has two criteria that she can consider. One is a sentence that is severe enough to deter the defendant from doing it again. The second is to deter like-minded people from doing the same thing. So built into the federal sentencing guidelines are not only a deterrent for the actor, but a deterrent to, to somebody who might see what I've done and say, I want to do that myself. So 250 people came to our trial. They had an overflow courtroom that had an audio feed. So the judge can say, all these people came here to support these seven people, and I have to deter them too. So she basically has a built-in reason for giving us more severe sentences than, and, and there are no there are no economic disincentives. They can spend all the money they want to. Nobody cares about the amount of money being spent. I mean, nobody cares about the amount of money being spent on the Pentagon. So they're sure not going to care about a far, far less amount of money being spent on the prison system. So the feds just get away with it, you know, because there's really no, no checks and balances on the system. The feds do whatever they want. What did you and the other members of the Teens Bay Plowshares 7 hope to accomplish with your action? Have you been successful in meeting those goals? In a worldly sense, and I've had an opportunity to do a lot of my work in peace and justice with secular people. And so people of religious faith, uh, you know, I think we look at efficacy differently. Um, you know, people who don't have a religious faith necessarily and are acting for pragmatic reasons and because they, they have a great sense of, of right from wrong and they want to do right, they may have more of a desire to, to be effective. And efficacy becomes an important component of that. For me, as a religious actor, I don't even really look that heavily at effectiveness because even, you know, if I were to assess effectiveness based on, on the uh, criteria of the world, I would say we were very ineffective. We're not getting much media coverage. Uh, There's not a bunch of people calling for disarmament at Kings Bay. I mean, we've had a, we've not been a big game changer in any respect and, and, and pretty much everybody's ignored us. They think that we're outliers, that we're oddballs, you know, that we're, you know, that we're just, uh, people who take the law into our own hands. I mean, they've diminished us significantly. Uh, But doing the action uh, is important nonetheless. Uh, You know, there's a quote from Gandhi 
which says something like, uh, and I, I'm paraphrasing, but much of what you do will seem ineff ineffective or even counterproductive, but it's essential that you do it anyway. So there's a sort of symbolism in our actions. I mean, we we acted in a kind of a theatrical way. It was a dramatic action. I, in my in my testimony in court, I compared our action to the Boston Tea Party uh, as a political entity, you know, as a political example, historical political example, and I compared it to Jesus cleansing the temple of the money changes from a theological perspective. So I used both of those examples, and I don't see there's a way to gauge effectiveness. I think that collectively, there are people in the world working to change uh, change the direction of the world, uh, to move the world away from from nuclearism and the development of more nuclear weapons. And there are people, and we're, we're very much in the minority right now, but nonetheless, we're not, uh, you know, we're certainly not acting in vain. I, I don't think that. Given the lengthy prison sentence that you are facing, was it worth it to engage in civil disobedience at Kings Bay? If we hadn't gone to Kings Bay, people living in those communities there uh, would never have given any thought to Kings Bay as being anything more than an employer, uh, an economic boost. You know, I mean, Jimmy Carter was the one who brought the Trident base. You know, Carter was a Navy admiral before he was a governor, before he was a president, and has always been very, very pro-war, pro-military. Well, uh, he was the one who was able to secure Kings Bay for the Trident submarine base. So, I mean, it completely changed everything about that part of Southeast Georgia and made it a huge, you know, component of the military industrial complex and brought in probably thousands of jobs just in the construction and all that, but also the workers who were there. I mean, it's just all these people committed to nuclear weapons and nuclear war are just now there living and being. So uh, I think what we did is we went there and sort of we were messengers, right? We, we had a message to bring and our message was theatrical and it was a, a way to sort of wake people up. And I think it's probably had uh, an impact in that regard. So, I mean, again, I can't really gauge efficacy because it's just too hard to gauge it. And we're trying to gauge efficacy, you know, well, we're not having a bunch of politicians running for office saying, I support the Kings Bay plowshares. I mean, it's not that kind of change. But I think people now have to sort of uh, think about things in a different light. Because when they think about Kings Bay, sometimes the, the thought's going to come to mind, yeah, what about those seven people who went to prison for saying that this was all a sin? Uh, what about that? There's never been a time before, I think, in the entire history of the United States where the mainstream media is now taking the kind of position it's taking on systemic racism and police behavior, police brutality in particular, just an incredible uh, transformation of how people are looking at the behavior of the police, holding up uh, Confederate history uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a favorable light. They're saying, no, the, the monuments are coming down. People are taking to the streets saying Black Lives Matter. Uh, this is all now getting mainstream coverage, and it's getting coverage in such ways that if businesses don't support Black Lives Matter, there's economic consequences now. This is dramatic social change that I haven't seen anything like since the Vietnam War. So my hope, of course, is that this movement eventually comes to look at places like Kings Bay and say, yep, that's a major component of racism. That's a major component of, 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 of 
why people are poor, why we don't have good health care, because the, the military industrial complex is stealing all these resources away from people's needs. I think there's big social change going on. And I'm hoping that by our making some connections to the triplets that Martin Luther King spoke of, and militarism being one of them, and King, you know, of course, had his famous quote, you know, uh, it's nonviolence or non-existence. You know, the, the problem is no longer between violence and nonviolence. It is either nonviolence or non-existence. I mean, King said that you know, almost 60 years ago, and it, we're still talking about the same things now. You know, one of the things I'm going to say when I get sentenced, and I, uh, you're privy to it first, I'm going to say right up front to the uh, prosecutor, to the probation people, and to the judge, that my hope and my prayer is that I'll never be vindicated, that my action will always seem to be outlandish, strange, inappropriate, and even wrong. Because if I'm vindicated, the calamity that's going to face us as a human family is going to be unprecedented and horrific. So I hope you're all right. Patrick O'Neill is a longtime peace and anti-racist activist and a member of the Teens Bay Plowshares 7. Music for Southern Discomfort was recorded by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jonathan Michaels.